internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your days, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, Alex. So, you and I have been hanging out for um, a chunk of the afternoon before we started recording, and we watched a couple things on YouTube, <clears throat> including a Coheed and Cambria cover of Kisses Love Gun on YouTube. Sure did. Now, earlier today, when I was just like doing chores, uh, I watched a video on YouTube by a creator I really like called Twelve Tone, um, which are all these super nerdy, like music theory based analyses of songs. But um, so Twelve Tone did a video on Hart's cover of Alone. Okay. Which. The original version is by an obscure band that, like, no one's ever really heard of, um, but didn't do so hot. But the point is, it's a cover, and 12-Tone talks about, like, how to nail a cover in this video. And this is a conversation that you and I have been having off and on for years. Mm -hmm. What do you think makes a really good cover, Andy? Because I think that Coheed and Cambria cover was better than the Kiss song. <laughs> and that's not just because I hate that Kiss song. Sure, right. I, I, I subscribe to the notion that a cover needs to do something different. Mm -hmm. um, a however slight genre bend of the original work and then it's just a question of if it can like hold on its own or not i i think those are two separate things i think a cover should do something but that something doesn't necessarily make it popular or not but we've talked at length how i think the greatest cover song ever is johnny cash's hurt mm -hmm. which takes the nine inch nails dark electronica rock song and turns it into a brooding dark country ballad and you could have it all my empire of dirt yeah i you know what that's interesting like i love hurt i'm not gonna lie to you i prefer the nine inch nails version um I don't really know why. I, I just have always preferred that version. Trent Reznor himself no longer plays that song in that way anymore. Right. He now plays the version that's actually in line with their, um, it was either MTV Storytellers or Unplugged or whatever, but he does it as a piano ballad now. Um, sure. Which is just a completely third different arrangement. And I think that was his way of trying to take it back. Um, but... And, you know, I love that cover of Hurt. I have disagreed with you on thinking it's the best cover of all time. I've got some counterexamples. Um, I think Jimi Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower cover is up there. I think Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah cover is up there. I think Aretha Franklin's Respect cover is up there. R-E-S-P-E-C-T Find out what it means to me Um, so, but all the same, I mean, something that I do think is intriguing there. So you say it's doing something different with it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, so the example I always come up with is, 
both um, dis- actually so so you have Pantera's Walk. Yeah. I know of at least three bands that have covered that. Avenge Sevenfold, Disturbed, and, and Trivium. Okay. And all of them are fine. All of them are the Pantera version. All of basically. them are the Pantera version, which yeah. makes them lesser ever so slightly to me. Now, Disturbed's cover of The Sound of Silence or Land of Confusion, what do you think of those? Better than their cover of Walk, because at least they're taking a thing and, like, trying to do something different with it. That's fair. I, I, you know, I've got time. I do have time for Disturbed's cover of Land of Confusion. I think it's fun. Yeah. Uh, I think their cover of Sound of Silence is okay. Um... But yeah, I'm with you that their cover of Walk is just... I mean, it's very clear they want to do it like a fun tribute thing. I don't actually mind... Okay, so this was this was brought up in the 12-tone video. So um, the... I think the band that uh, originally did Alone, I think they were called I-10. Something like that. Um, they were the original songwriters, too. Hart's cover of the original, which I had never heard the original before listening to this... Um, is pretty faithful, but it has a few key differences. One is it's a little bit faster, not a huge, not a huge deal, um, but a little bit fat, noticeably faster. Um, another is a slight change in the lyrics. Um, the original I-10 version, how well do you know Hearts Alone? Till now, I always got you never heard that song? I enjoy Heart and probably Gun to My Head. I could not tell you a third Heart song. Okay, that's fair. Um, they make a slight change in the chorus. Um, they have the vocals come in a little more quickly. They change the arrangement of the intro to the chorus a little. They get rid of this really, like the old version had this cliche like, Doom, 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 drum fill before the chorus, mm. and they just launch right into it. It's 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 a better arrangement. Okay. The biggest change is that it's a female vocal, and Twelve Tone points out like because Twelve Tone their thing they've talked about covers before they've talked about Johnny Cash's Hurt before, and something they talk about there is yes covers should be big different, like they should do something significantly different. And this heart cover is pretty faithful, but 12 Tones argument is by making it a female vocalist, the perspective shift on it is huge because if it's your typical 80s band, you know, aesthetic and you have a male vocalist singing a song, how do I get you alone? This song of longing and chasing after someone. We've fucking heard that story a million times, but the brilliance of heart is that reframing from a female perspective of pursuit and unabashed desire. And Heart has always been an unabashedly female sexual band. Right. Um, So musically, there's not that much different, but there's a really, really cool different change there. I agree with you that it needs to be like a proper change. That Pantera and the Avenged Sevenfold versions of of Walk meh but like yeah johnny cash's heart this cover of heart and the very subtle changes that it makes um 
admittedly, you can do something very different and it not work. I think of Britney Spears' cover of I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Right. And you hate the Rolling Stones anyway, but... I hate the Rolling Stones anyway. Or Hilary Duff's cover of My Generation. Which I was just about to say, for those of you who are curious, is my opinion of the worst cover of all time. Yeah. Limp Biscuit's cover of um, Behind Blue Eyes tries to do something different. I actually like that cover better than most people. It's not a great song, but they tried to do something different with it. Yeah. They got rid of the bridge, which is maybe the best part of the song, but... uh, It was Limp Biscuit trying to be serious. Which is never what Limp Bizkit should be doing. Yes, but their cover of Faith is actually really, really good. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, let's take poppy acoustic George Michael single and make it a, like, relatively faithful cover at the beginning. And then in the chorus, just, like, launch into West Borland crazy guitar lines. Right. And and I, I think about cover albums and it's almost always anthology stuff like i i'm a big fan of pop goes punk yeah which is nothing but punk covers of famous pop hits yeah and like a lot of i know of a lot of ska bands that kind of lived in the wheelhouse of being just cover bands um that is just because otherwise you just sit there and go what's the purpose yeah well, and, you know, there's a long tradition in punk music of doing pop covers. Like, literally, from the inception, the Ramones, the whole purpose behind their sound was they were trying to recreate the Phil Spector wall of sound. They wanted to sound like the Ronettes. Mm. That's why they did covers of Be My Baby. Like, right. they, they, that, was, that was their whole... They, it's just for them, they were like, okay, we don't have an entire studio orchestra to do this with, so let's just do it with cranked guitars and bass. And real quick, for those of you keeping track, I think this is the second episode in a row where you've talked about the Ramones. Maybe the Ramones need to be a love for me at some point. Maybe. I did deep dive their entire discography uh, like a year or two ago and was like, there's a lot that's good here. Some things are bad, but like there's a lot lot in Ramones' discography. It took me a few days. Well, okay, here's your preview. You heard it here first, people. Welcome to Love Hate Relationship. Um, thank you for bearing with us as we do what we do at the start of every episode and just talk about whatever we want, in this case, cover songs and our opinions of them. Um, but what we usually do on this show for you, our dear listeners, is one of us talks about something we love, the other person then talks about something we hate, and we take yours and the internet's relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice. That's right. And Andy, this time you have the love. I have the love. And I have not actually gotten a chance to read these notes, so this is going to be interesting. Which I actually prefer in this case. Um... I know I have the love this week, and I'm going to take a chance to discuss the National Hockey League franchise of the Arizona Coyotes. I've literally never heard of this hockey team. This does not shock me. However, the reason I love the Coyotes is not what you might expect. See, this is, if I'm counting right, the third sports franchise I have talked about on Love-Hate Relationship. Mm-hmm. And looking at all three together, it's a bit of a good, the bad, and the ugly situation. Okay. The Tampa Bay Lightning, that's two-time Stanley Cup champions since we talked about them on the show, mm-hmm. are the good. 
The New England Patriots, who have walked away from Tom Brady and have been solidly meh since we last discussed them, are the bad. Boo, New England. (laughs) And now we're going to talk about the ugly. The Arizona Coyotes are perhaps the single most sad sack, pathetic franchise currently operating in sports history today. Okay. I am excited. I want you to know... And this might be obscure. And, and I happen to know there are two or three listeners to our podcast who are Scrubs super fans. Mm-hmm. So they might remember this scene. But I remember um, an episode of Scrubs where Dr. Cox was forced to go on a double date that included Elliot. Sure. Uh, Dr. Elliot Reed, with who, after whom we named one of our questions in a previous episode. Um, but I remember him basically saying to Keith, the male counterpart of this date... Um, how he was going to sit him down and explain to him at length why the Detroit Red Wings were the greatest sports franchise in all of history. For the next 20 minutes, you will sit in silence while I tell you why the Detroit Red Wings are the greatest franchise in the history of professional sports on September 25, 1926. You have that level of excitement right now on your face. This is the greatest something in sports history. Also, fun fact, John C. McGinley, uh, yeah, huge hockey fan and close personal friend of famous Detroit Red Wings defenseman Chris Chelios. They would lift shit on Muscle Beach together all the time. Jesus. Okay, did not know that. That's why Dr. Cox is an unabashed Red Wings fan. All right. But we're going to talk about a much funnier, much worse franchise than the Detroit Red Wings. Um, so I'm going to take us back to 1972, where this hockey franchise originated as the Winnipeg Jets of the World Hockey Association. You may notice that's neither the name of the team or the name of the league that I just said a moment ago. It's also not the same country. Not the same country. Uh, The WHA was a second North American pro hockey league because there was at one point where, like, we just decided let's have two. For some reason. Yeah. Um, Which was eventually merged into the NHL. After 24 years of Winnipeg being one of the smallest and least profitable markets in the sport, the team was bought by Jerry Coangelo, owner of the NBA's Phoenix Suns, and relocated to the desert, becoming the Phoenix Coyotes. And this was kind of a a huge initiative in the mid-90s to bring hockey to non-traditional markets. Um, Both the Florida franchises got their start in, like, I want to say 94, um, and this was 95, where we were bringing hockey to the desert. So This is 96, then? uh, Yes, this was in 1996. Okay. So, if I am correct, we are four years past the Mighty Ducks movie. We are four years past the Mighty Ducks movie. We are also, you you sent me a TikTok about this, we are a couple of years away from the Anaheim Mighty Ducks becoming the Disney-owned California franchise. Real talk, this is the year that the Mighty Ducks animated series debuted. There you go. So so hockey is on the rise. We're we're sending it places it maybe shouldn't go, like the Sunshine State and the Desert. Okay. Decidedly mid, 
the team was fine on paper and had a few stars of the day. It made trades with better franchises for star players, and the team made the playoffs for most of their first decade. Okay. However, the Coyotes' original home arena, American West Arena, was suboptimal for hockey. Although, considered a state-of-the-art arena when they built it for the Phoenix Suns, a basketball team, unlike most modern arenas, it was not designed with a hockey rink in mind. So therefore, the floor was barely large enough to fit a standard NHL rink, forcing the Coyotes to hastily re-engineer it to accommodate the 200-foot necessary space. This left a portion of one end of the upper deck hanging over the boards and the ice, obscuring almost a third of the rink and one goal for several sections. As a result, listed capacity had to be cut from over 18,000 seats to just over 16,000, the second smallest league in the time after its first season. So to be clear, in 1997, you could buy a ticket to a Phoenix Coyotes game and get box seats and be sat somewhere where the players go under you, go underneath a giant balcony you are sitting in, and you cannot see effectively one of the most important areas of the ice being one of the goals. When I lived in Orlando, the local team was the Orlando Solar Bears, and they played in Amway Arena, which is also where the Orlando Magic played. Indeed. So eventually, we got the technology. Yeah, well, the uh, Amway Arena is also fucking huge. Mm. But, like, I, I saw a Solar Bears game there when it was still the TD Waterhouse, I'm pretty sure. Sure. But so, yeah, like, it's... it's this is a brand new team where we're bringing hockey to a brand new American location. And it was entirely possible. I, I guess it wasn't possible because they just didn't let anybody sit there. Mm -hmm. But the fact that their building was just totally unprepared for a hockey team is both hilarious to me and a harrowing indication of things to come. Okay. At this point, and, and so we're we are sitting here saying uh, 1990, I want to say five. Okay. Tupac's still alive, so Indeed. Things, are, things are pretty good. Uh, the Coyotes changed ownership groups again, moving to Glendale, Arizona, and stunt casted Wayne Gretzky, a.k.a. the greatest hockey player of all time, a.k.a. a hockey player you actually know and have heard of. Indeed. The great one. As their head coach, despite Gretzky having no coaching experience. Interesting. This is why I call it stunt casting. The great one was not so much at coaching. Mm. Uh, over the four years where he coached the team, they had a, a total record of 193 wins and 186 losses. This would equate to a just over 15% win rate. The team would have a winning record of over 500% just one of those years. Uh, so they are as even as you can get, which is bad. Sure. You're not supposed to lose almost as many games as you win. Okay. That is not what good franchises do. For context, there are 82 games in a season, so in four years, uh, Wayne Gretzky, there's there's a possible of 
what is it, 328 wins? You said 82? 82 times 4. 82 times 4, I just typed in 82 times 5. 82 times 4 is 328. And Gretzky gets just under 200. There's a phenomenon that I've heard talked about in a few different capacities. Um, it comes up with weightlifting a lot, um, which, you know, that's my sport. But it's fairly prevalent in basketball, I know for a fact, as well. Um, the best players are not... The best players of the sport, the best practitioners of the sport, are rarely the best coaches. Yeah. The best coaches definitely need to have experience playing the sport. But often... They're the ones, the best coaches are the ones who, A, have the communication skills and strategic minds that are needed, but B, acted as practitioners and worked very hard at it, but were not naturally as gifted. So what happens is their performance careers in the sport are fine, maybe okay, um, but because they have had to work so hard to fill in all of these gaps that a more talented player wouldn't need to worry about, they understand these games in a much more detailed way. Mm. Would you argue that Wayne Gretzky has a lot of natural talent at the sport of hockey? Of course. So he probably didn't have to work as hard. Right. The idea would be he's sitting on the bench and he goes, oh, just score this impossible goal. That's what I do. Yeah. And... The plug looks up and is like, yeah, thanks, Wayne. I'll try. Yeah. Needless to say, Gretzky chose not to renew his contract at the end of four years and has never coached again, leading this to be a kind of amusing skid mark to his storied professional legacy. It's Michael Jordan playing golf. It, it's Michael Jordan playing baseball. That, that too. <laughs> if you're doing it, stop it. Get some help. Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky probably played golf like once every five years as like a, we were the greatest in our sport kind of meetup. Meanwhile, the ghost of Pele is like, fuck you both. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, so fast forward to 2009. Um, the franchise changes ownership yet again, or at least it tried to. Reports were leaked to the media that the franchise was near bankrupt and creating a massive money problem for current owner Jerry Moyes. And, and for context, you know, the, the whole initiative was let's bring hockey to the desert. Let's have a, a respectable enough team, even if the coach sucks. And even at their best, it was a, a constant level of mockery just how empty a Coyotes home game arena would be. And you can find these pictures of like boomer looking men and their wives. And they're the only two people sitting in like an entire section mm. wearing like just just period. Yeah. Um, this is not a profitable venture and never has been a profitable venture. So good. Andy, why do you love this fucking team? Because I like to point at them and laugh. Jesus shit. The other day, listeners, I got into this rant about how the Toronto Maple Leafs cannot beat anybody in the first round of the playoffs. And they've been trying for 40 years and they just can't do it. And they have one of the best teams in the NHL right now. And they just 
keep losing in game sevens. And it is the funniest goddamn thing because I am not personally a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Jesus. It is the same. I am Nelson Muntz pointing and going, ha ha. It's 2009. Jerry Moyes is trying to sell the team, or at least he reveals that the team is bankrupt. And the NHL itself begins covering the expenses of the team while Moyes tries to sell it. Moyes picks out a millionaire who wants to move the franchise to Hamilton, Ontario. And NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, the man who was the brainchild behind Let's Bring Hockey to the Desert and Florida and California, goes, No! And personally vetoes the sale because he wants to keep hockey in the desert, a.k.a. America, as opposed to sending it to a Canadian city that is like chomping at the bit for yet another hockey team. Those godless Canadians. I know. The league would hold stewardship over the team for the next four years before the city of Glendale, who ostensibly, by the way, were supposed to have been seeing financial revenue and benefit Mm -hmm. for the hassle of having a professional sports team. That's like kind of the handshake agreement between a city and a franchise is Mm -hmm. you let us operate and play here and you'll get money because we're a pro sports team. They were not. The city of Glendale absolutely was not. And finally put their foot down and forced the sale to a new ownership group who finally rebranded the team, the Arizona Coyotes. Wait, so what what the fuck was their name until this point again? The Phoenix Coyotes. Okay. And they had not played in Phoenix for like 12 years. Okay. (laughs) Again... This is stuff that only happens to this franchise. <laughs> they would, uh, so so they, they have a new ownership group. Um, they rebrand themselves, the Arizona Coyotes, and this does very little to help because even when the team is good, like I said, they'd be playing in a near empty arena. And much of the next 12 years, the Yotes would not be good. In fact, they would be one of the worst teams in the standings year in and year out and would continue to hemorrhage money, which makes sense when you're an awful team, so nobody comes to your game, so you don't have money to necessarily sign new players or um, nobody wants to go play in your empty-ass arena and live in Glendale, Arizona, except for Alice Cooper, weirdly. Um, Eh. Fun fact, Alice Cooper is the world's biggest Arizona Coyotes fan. He's like Getty Lee watching the Pittsburgh Pirates. Look, he needed something after he got sober. All he had was evangelical Christianity. Indeed. Um, For the next 12 years, they're one of the worst teams in the league and continue to hemorrhage money, culminating in 2021 where the city of Glendale reported that the team owed $1.3 million in various tax debts and would be locked out of their own arena unless the money was paid. And maybe you sit here and go, well, it's a, it's a professional sports team. Surely they can scrape together a measly 1.3 mil. And they couldn't. The ownership group said, we don't, have it. I, you know, it's interesting. A question that I was getting ready to ask you is like, 
what do the players get paid for this team? Like, earnestly. And, and I ask that because there's an old Daniel Tosh joke where he talks about, I want to say it was Tom Brady retiring, speaking of the Patriots. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, or maybe it was Brett Favre. I don't remember. But clearly Daniel Tosh is a football fan and knows a lot about football. And he talks about how um, people are surprised that players won't retire. And he goes into, yeah, but you could then play as a safety and you'd make this much a year. Or you could just be on the practice squad. That's 500k a year. And it's like, okay, I understand. Like, if you're on the practice squad and you're making half a million dollars a year being on the practice squad, not even playing the games, that's a cushy-ass gig. If you're on a terrible hockey team, hockey's a sport where once you're knocked out, you stop playing for the rest of the season, right? Uh, I mean, if, if you, yeah, if you get hurt, you stop playing for the rest of the season. I, I mean the team. Like, when the team finishes, how many, how many, if you're as bad as this, team Mm. you said there's what 82 games a year there's 82 games you play all 82 okay um there's kind of this what are we doing here thing at the end i i believe arizona uh joins a bunch of other really bad franchises in having tank offs where they try to be as bad as possible in order to get the next generational talent in, a, in an NHL draft or at least have a chance to. Interesting. And so you'll get into things where like a goalie on a really bad team has a really good night and the fans of that team are booing their own goalie because they want to lose rather than win. What the fuck is sports, Andy? I mean, I that we don't have time for that. All I can tell you is hockey people are especially insane. Jesus. Um, to, to, to get back to your question, like, players make about as much lower-end average of anywhere else. It's, it's The thing is, like, there's a salary cap, and there's a minimum and a maximum. So, like, every team has to have at least $82,000, let's say. It's, okay. It might be less than More that. More than either of us make. Right. Or, uh... Not eighty-two thousand, eight, eight, like eight point two million or eighty-two million, something like that. Let's say eighty-two million. Um, I looked it up right now. Right now, the most, the the highest paid player on the Arizona Coyotes makes seven, just over seven million dollars. Andy, the minimum salary for hockey players in the NHL is six hundred and fifty thousand dollars per year. It sure is. So why wouldn't you play for this team even if they were shit? Well, yeah, I mean, the players really don't give a shit. You you get to go to a warm place. The golf's great. NHLers are notorious for loving golf for some reason. Mm. You can go there as a literal nobody and, like, make a name for yourself. And if you're really lucky, you'll get traded to a better team, which has happened several times over the decades. Like, yeah, no, for the players, it's like, Okay, I'm not gonna win the cup, but screw it. I'm I'm gonna make five point five million dollars as a thirty-six year old yeah. when literally no one else in the league will hire me because I'm thirty-six and bad. I get it. For management, they're sitting there going, Oh god shit, we gotta play, we gotta pay everybody. Clayton Keller needs his seven million dollars. 
Oh God, the city's calling. Uh, let her go to voicemail. Let her go to voicemail. <laughs> Why is this just fucking Patton Oswalt's penguin character from Bojack Horseman? <laughs> oh, very apt comparison. <laughs> Okay, I get why you love this. We made a series of very bad investments. Ever hear of a young adult franchise called the Swamp Monsters of Malibu? Uh, no. Then why did we spend $20 million on marketing? There you go. So they, they owe $1.3 million, which is nothing to a sports franchise. <laughs> Basketball professionals are signing like $400 million for two years deals and the Arizona Coyotes can't come up with 1.3 mil. They are told they will be locked out of their own arena unless the money is paid. At this point, the NHL thought that they were done. They thought that they didn't have to like cover for these guys anymore. They didn't have to keep loaning their friend who's addicted to heroin 20s. Sure. This leads to a logical divorce of the team. I think like, like they somehow come up with the money and the team is like, okay, here's the money. And the city of Glendale is like, okay, your asses are out next year. Like you have proven to us you are incapable of making us money. We do not give a shit. Get out. And the Arizona Coyotes leave Glendale and it has been announced that they will be moving back to Phoenix. Or rather, next season, the Phoenix Coyotes will be playing at the Arizona State University Multipurpose Arena. A goddamn college hockey. Not even college hockey where anybody gives a shit. Like, bad college hockey arena. Okay. Not only is the venue about a quarter of the size, probably even less than, of an average NHL arena, meaning at maximum they can only make a quarter of usual ticket and concession sales, but, and this is the thing that inspired me to talk about this, and this is my favorite thing ever. At time of recording, reports have come out that the Arizona Coyotes will not be allowed to put their logo at center ice as it is currently brandishing the logo of the ASU Sun Devils. Which is perfectly reasonable, because it's the Sun Devils goddamn arena! <laughs> this is a professional sports team. Executives make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Players make millions of dollars. And they are having to crawl hands and knees to a state college and go, please let us play our games at your arena. You are the only patch of ice within the state that will take us. It's Arizona State, too. They're a party school. And Arizona State goes, okay, but don't leave your shit around. You clean up the locker room after every home game. You're sure as shit not putting your stupid little Coyote Head logo on our center ice, bitch. And Arizona has to go, okay. This is really sad, Andy. This is so sad. This is so laughably pathetic. We talked about how the Tampa Bay Lightning at one point were involved with the Yakuza. And this is stupider. And this is stupider. All right. You know what? 
I'm here for this. This is... <laughs> You've turned me. This is one of the most maligned franchises in all of sports, and it just it gives me a wicked joy to watch them and just laugh. Because they're just bad. This To carry out my earlier analogy, this is the Millhouse Van Houten of sports franchises. Oh, God. So, thank you, Alex, and thank you, listeners, for coming on that wild ride with me. That was an experience. You want to talk about some bullshit now? Yeah. All right. Andy, you're a theater person. Sure am. Uh, and one who's had a bit of acting training in particular. So as best as you can relate, can you explain to me what your understanding of method acting is? And if you can, any examples you've seen of it. Sure. So method acting in a kind of quick, lame, any kind of sense, the, the method in method acting is inhabiting your character, committing to what you are pretending no matter what. Losing yourself and who you are, losing the actor and becoming the character. So a really famous method actor, somebody who is is really well known for it and always gets Oscar Cloud, who I skimmed your notes and I don't think you actually mentioned him at all, is Daniel Day-Lewis. I do at one point. Okay, well, I missed that. Daniel Day-Lewis is famous for, like, just committing to whatever it is. And the most famous recent example is this man played Abraham Lincoln in the Steven Spielberg film Lincoln. And for the entire time he was filming, he did not use anything predating Civil War era technology. So no cell phones. No cars. He lived, like, in a trailer on set. He, like, grew out the beard and just was Abraham Lincoln as best he can can, as best he could be. The, the thing you hear a lot is, like, people will either gain weight or lose a tremendous amount of weight because it's like, oh, it's what my character would be. I'm going to emaciate myself because my character is super thin and skinny and fuck makeup. Christian Bale was good at that. Another example I want to give before I hand it back to you is Wesley Snipes from Blade Trinity. God damn it. Wesley Snipes, who, speaking of Patton Oswalt, he's the one who famously has a, a stand-up bit about this, got into a fight with director David S. Goyer and would spend the rest of filming smoking weed in his trailer and leaving post-it notes that he signed Blade. Mm-hmm. So, like... Have Crafty bring me a tuna sandwich. Blade. Which I'm going to count as method acting. <laughs> I appreciate you. And I appreciate that you only skimmed my notes. <laughs> well, where's the fun in, in knowing what you're about to talk to me about? Indeed, I had no idea anything about fucking Arizona coyotes. I appreciate the answer. Um, the answer you gave... Funny enough, um, I kind of predicted you would give, because that is the pop culture understanding of method acting. Sure. And the very first point that I want to talk about, first of all, my topic, which I haven't fully settled on a title for yet, but basically it is the misuse of method acting. Uh To start with my background, I want to mention what method acting is not. 
And contrary to pop culture understandings, there isn't anything in formal method acting that says that one is supposed to stay in character at all times. There is mention in one Lee Strasberg book, and Strasberg is one of the people I'm going to talk about a lot, in one Lee Strasberg book of Stanislavski, the guy who this all this shit ultimately kind of comes from, right. briefly experimenting with this approach, both for himself and for some of the actors he was directing. Stanislavski was like, okay, I want you to try inhabiting your character both on and off the stage. Stanislavski tried this. He tried this for some of his own roles, and he tried this with some of his actors, and he abandoned it very early, mm -hmm. well before he was famous, well before he had written any of his books, as he was developing his early shit. He played with this and was like, you know what? This is bullshit. This doesn't actually help anything. Strasberg wrote about that and specifically wrote about how it was a failure because it didn't fucking work. <laughs> sure. But assholes like Daniel Day-Lewis latched onto that. I've got more on that later. Okay. But I thought you might say that interpretation up front because that's what most people understand method acting to be. Well, I hate to be predictable, but I'm glad to be helpful. I am so happy for you. So, happy to have you, I should say. So, what method acting actually is is a group of performance and rehearsal techniques designed to allow actors to give extremely sincere and quote-unquote true emotional performances. It's based on the work of early 20th century Russian actor-slash-director Konstantin Stanislavski, and it was further developed by students of his. Really, only one of these people actually studied with him, but they were big consumers of his work and students of his work. Sure. Um, Lee Strasberg, Sanford Meisner, and Stella Adler, who was the one who actually did study with him. Okay. So, among these three students, the people who they then taught, you have actors including Warren Beatty, Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, Paul Newman, Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino, Jane Fonda, Mickey Rourke, Gregory Peck, Alec Baldwin, Sidney Pollack, Tina Fey, Tom Cruise, and Will Wheaton, <laughs> just to pick a handful from each of them. Really, really shoehorning in Will Wheaton on, on that list, I feel like. I'm just trying to give you the... Honestly, the reason I picked Will Wheaton there was, I'm, was I was honestly interested in showing the distinct expanse of timeline here. Okay. Gregory Peck and Will Wheaton. Are on these are on this fucking timeline. Sure. So, and just 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 real quick to go back half a step for for people in the audience who are not like theater people or acting people, I, I think it's important context to say, like, forget the actors. The other names you've mentioned are like the great gods of theater, like of acting theory. Of, of yes. acting theory, yeah. Underneath Shakespeare, you hear people just talk about. Stanislavski, Strasberg, Meisner, Adler. The only one you're missing is Uta Hagen. And you know what? The thing about Uta Hagen is her techniques also stemmed largely from Stanislavski, but they deviated heavily from the method acting umbrella. Sure. So that's why I'm not including Uta Hagen on this. Uta Hagen is fucking great and maybe the most interesting actual person of this group. 
um, originated uh, the main character in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. She is wonderful. Um, but yeah, so you're right. For theater people, for people like us who have studied acting with some degree of academia, like you had, uh, you had theater classes in college. I had a minor in theater. Like this was, this is our, these are our shit. This right. is our shit. I've got books by these people on my bookshelf right now still. So there's a bit of variation depending on what exact teacher for how the quote unquote method should be employed. Stanislavski's original method was largely rooted in researching a character really extensively and then finding the physical embodiment of the character often through improvisation in rehearsal. So you would know your script, you would research your character. If your character is a train driver, you would research trains and fucking the people who conduct them. Um, and then in the course of it, he would have his actors in a rehearsal do like, okay, I want you to order breakfast at a cafe as your character, and I want you to embody the physicality of it. Right. Stanislavski's also where we get a lot of the animal work kind of thing. Okay, you're going to do this animal. Your character is a bearish sort of man, so incorporate your bear work into it. That was Stanislavski. Mm. Um, Strasberg was more about delving into the psychological experiences of the character usually using one's own emotional experiences to relate to them. So Strasberg was the one who was like, okay, you have to be mourning the death of some somebody in this scene. Remember the last time that you mourned somebody, right. that someone you loved died. Um, you know, here you have to be elated. Think of your happiest memory from your teenage years because your character that's the kind of energy we want to bring here and transfer that energy over um that was actually something that stanislavski largely only considered a last resort he said if you've got nothing else to work with on this character you can dive into your emotional memory but strasberg like that was his shit mm -hmm. um Adler preferred that actors research characters and understand their given circumstances, um, then use their imaginations to create the emotional truth for it. So Adler, like Stanislavski, was like, research your train conductor. And then, okay, let's also understand the time period we're in, the socioeconomic factors we're in, the pressures we're in, and then use your imagination to create the stakes for this character and get your emotional content that way. Mm -hmm. And finally, Meisner's approach was essentially to learn a script completely cold, learn every single word of it perfectly, to where it was second nature and you didn't have to think about the actual words, and then inhabit the actual living space of the scene, where you're interacting with other actors in real time. Um, the classic Meisner technique is you, you have one line, you take one line from your scene and you and your scene partner act at each other without any words. It's all pantomime. It's all movement. It's all just interacting with each other and reacting to one another until something happens that is your, that is, that motivates you to say your line. So if your line is hey, buddy, fuck you, it's you do your scene, you do a scene, you do some kind of interaction until 
that person gives you a reason to say, hey, buddy, fuck you. Mm-hmm. That's Meisner. So the thing, and I, and, I, and I understand you said it's kind of the stereotype, but the thing is, I in all of these, I have not heard blah, blah, blah's approach was literally pretend you're Abraham Lincoln for the exact amount of time that you're doing this thing. And that's kind of the issue with a lot of the method acting. So the point of method acting at its core, all of these different approaches, what they're ultimately trying to do is create emotional truth in a scene. And Meisner talks about inhabiting a character via understanding their every line Mm -hmm. from the script. Strasberg and Adler and Stanislavski, to a certain extent, are all about embodying your character from a certain angle. Stanislavski, it's embody the character physically. Strasberg, it's embody the character psychologically and use your own experiences to relate to them. Adler, it's imagine those circumstances. Use your imagination, but also research a character and understand them intimately. The whole point of it is supposed to be embodying these characters so that the way that you perform is quote-unquote truthful. Does that make sense? Yes. So the way that you kind of end up with fucking Daniel Day-Lewis is is via a fundamental misunderstanding largely of Strasbourg. Okay. So this was a later point that I was going to talk about, but... Um, I think it's instructive here. This is how you get to something like a Daniel Day-Lewis. There's a story from the filming of the movie Marathon Man. It's 1976. It's I've never seen it, but I've heard good things about it. Um, but Laurence Olivier is in it, and he's supposed to do a scene with Dustin Hoffman. And Dustin Hoffman is a Strasbourg-trained method actor. Mm-hmm. Tr- literally studied under Strasbourg. Now, Hoffman in order to create his emotional truth for his character, his character is in, the, in this particular scene is supposed to be harried, really stressed out, and hadn't slept the entire night. Hoffman literally stayed up the entire night in order to be in this mindset for this scene so that he could create the emotional circumstances to act truly, quote-unquote. Olivier quipped upon seeing him, Try acting. It's so much easier. Sure. And and I love that. I I deeply appreciate that. And and I want to speak real quick. Uh, LHR love alumni Mads Mickelson um, replaced Johnny Depp as the role of Gellert Grindelwald in the Fantastic Beast series, which again, if you need a reminder, fuck JK Rowling, stupid turf. Um, but uh, Johnny Depp was out, Mads Mikkelsen's in, and somebody in that franchise was like talking about trying to method act the world of wizarding and, and a challenge for that. And Mickelson has a quote where he's like, am I supposed to be impressed that you committed to method acting for this really stupid part? Like, that sounds like a really dumb thing to do and a really bad waste of your time. And I'm judging you in Danish. Basically. Also, Johnny Depp, method actor. Yeah. That must have been who he was talking about. Yeah. So, and and again, the thing of it is, I'm not, 
I'm not shitting on properly done method acting. I'm shitting on shittily done method acting. Hoffman's method acting was shitty. Yeah. You can see the logic how from Dustin Hoffman going, okay, I am a student of Strasbourg. Strasbourg says to pull from your emotional experiences in order to perform a character. This character is supposed to be haggard and in a terrible state, exhausted, having stayed up all night. Let me go ahead and stay up all night so that I can recreate the circumstances under which this character would be under under these particular in this particular situation and then I can act emotional truth. The jump from there to Daniel Day-Lewis going, "Well, I'm rich. I can live like Abraham Lincoln so that I can fucking embody this character and be parodied by goddamn Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder eight years earlier. Mm. Like, it's... Because you know that's the shit that he's ta- that oh, they're talking yeah, about there. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a severe misunderstanding of what it actually takes to reach whatever the fuck emotional truth is. Absolutely. And, and like, so there's an aspect of this that I, I don't think think you've really touched on and are going to touch on so there's the pretentious assholery of daniel day lewis doing that there is also you'll hear so many horror stories of actors physically putting themselves in great danger or just straight up like mutilating their bodies in various different ways and a couple uh, examples that come to mind you know, Tom Cruise famously does all his own stunts and keeps trying to one-up himself for the Mission Impossible franchise. Studied under Meisner. Does shit like hang off a building in Abu Dhabi um, and hangs off of a plane in motion, a, a plane like with a shipping container, and Tom Cruise is hanging on to the shipping container. That man is going to die one of these days. But... I also can think of um, Ben Foster, Australian actor Ben Foster, in the war movie Lone Survivor, which is about like a SEAL team running through the Afghan mountains. And at one point, Ben Foster, who is a stereotypical method actor, basically goes to the camera crew and is like, are you filming? And they're like, yeah, okay, watch this. And then literally jumps off a mountain range like jumps off a steep cliffside that he then proceeds to roll down his own ass self. Yep. Um, and the other one that I will never not think about, there was a couple of years where Shia LaBeouf was losing his goddamn mind and was in... Also a method actor. And was in a uh, another World War II movie called Fury, which is a pretty, pretty great World War II movie. Shia LaBeouf slashes his own face... And takes a Leatherman and pulls out a few of his own teeth to get into the character of this tank gunner who you never notice that he's missing his fucking teeth. But Shia LaBeouf was like, no, I need to get in the headspace of this guy and just does some amateur dentistry. Try acting. It's much easier. (laughs) Indeed. I, you know what? My example of that is Christian Bale, who 
is another method actor, is another extremist method actor. And if I remember correctly, um, I think for the machinist, he got down to 96 pounds. Um, those of you who are not triggered by extreme weight loss, and I do mean it is disturbing. You can Google images of Christian Bale in The Machinist. Yeah. It is disturbing. And then, you know, you and I watched The Dark Knight recently. He's fucking 225 pounds in that role. Yeah. I can't, I, I, I'm probably going to get the things wrong, but I remember it was a Hollywood kind of like weird factoid joke of watch the Christian Bale trajectory because he goes from The Machinist to Batman Begins where he's jacked. Then he does The Fighter, where he plays a meth addict and goes super skinny again, and then does The Dark Knight. Like, it's back to forth, back to forth, to super skinny, to, like, peak Hollywood swole physique, to super skinny, to swole physique. And then at another point, he does American Hustle, which I'm pretty sure his diet for that was fucking ice cream. Mm. Just, like, tubs of ice cream, literally. It's... It's a glorious misunderstanding of method acting. It's this idea that to reach emotional truth, you have to go be you, you have to push yourself to these extremes. And, and I'm going to be upfront here. Um, there's misinterpretations on all of this. Tom Cruise, again, was a Meisner student and does these extremes. A lot of this, I, I argue comes from Strasbourg more than anyone. Um, you know, Strasbourg is arguably the most method of the method developers. Um, there are people who will say that Meisner doesn't count as method, that Adler doesn't even count as method. A lot of people argue that Stanislavski doesn't count as method, that things are that more like it was born of that, yeah. but like that he's not, but no one doesn't argue that Strasbourg is the core of method acting. And there is so much aggressive abuse in the Strasbourg method. Because the whole point with Strasbourg is this emotional truth thing. The reason Adler broke from Strasbourg's methodology, because they were contemporaries, the reason she broke from it was literally she was faced with this idea and this suggestion that to play a role where a character, where she's a character who's experiencing intense despair over the loss of a parent that she has to recall the pain of losing her own mother. Sure. And it's like, okay, you want me to delve into my fucking trauma about losing my mother? No, that's not acting. If that's what acting is, I want no part of it. And that, like, th this isn't in my notes, but Adler literally, after that, went to go study with Stanislavski and asked Stanislavski what he thought of Strasbourg's interpretation of him. And Stanislavski was like, that ain't my shit. That emotional recall thing, that's supposed to be a last resort. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in that. I'm not trying to do that. And Adler, in working with Stanislavski and rejecting Strasbourg, came up with this method of creating your context, which is not perfect. Because if you sit in that space for too long, imagine you're, you're playing character after character 
who goes to really dark fucking places, even if you're creating that for yourself, even if you're not pulling it from your own trauma, that is still going to fuck you up if you are not emotionally healthy. Well, and to, to bring it back to the dark night and... We even, you and I had a discussion after watching it where you told me you don't think this is actually true, but so many people after Heath Ledger passed, all they could talk about was how he locked himself in a hotel room for a month to prepare for the role and the whole like, the whole narrative that he became the Joker and it killed him evolved out of that. Yeah. And I mean, in fairness... Heath Ledger, another method actor. You know the thing I, I realized we haven't even touched on? Directors who push method onto their actors. Namely, like, the great abusers of Hollywood history. Your, your Alfred Hitchcock throwing live birds at Tippi Hedren. Your Stanley Kubrick psychologically assaulting... Shelley Duvall to the point of tears over and over and over again. Yeah. And this idea that truth is only born out of real experienced and captured on film trauma. Yeah. And it's fucking bullshit. Strasburg milks this shit to no end. Strasburg is literally emo minor emotional trauma for a good acting performance. Is Laurence Olivier a good actor, Andy? He's all right. Yeah. Pretty, like, good, pretty up there. Like, he he, he did decent. Is Mads Mikkelsen a good actor? <laughs> Mads Mikkelsen is a goddamn national treasure and a good actor, yes. And that's my point there. It's just... It's not that method acting in and of itself is bad. I You, you know, what training I have had has largely been in the Meisner technique. And... I think it's a perfectly acceptable approach to acting. It really is. However, I do recall that, okay, I had a great acting teacher in college. His name is David Charles. Shout out to him. If you are in Orlando, go see anything David Charles does at the Orlando Improv. He's one of the best improvisers I've ever seen in my life. Um, David Charles was my acting teacher in college. And... He pushed us incredibly hard in these classes to find really strong emotional centers in these characters. But he always understood that once you trigger into something deeper, once you find a trauma that a person maybe isn't ready to hit, he pulled back. He, this man would stop classes to take people aside when he realized that they had touched into something deep because we were doing deep acting work and a lot of it was Meisner based. And a lot of it was delving into deep emotional shit, but he refused to traumatize his students to get good performances. And I respect the fuck out of that. But that's the point. If you're, if you're using a Strasbourg technique, you probably should be seeing a counselor or a therapist at the same time because you are going to be touching raw nerves of human emotion that if you haven't figured your shit out about, will absolutely destroy you. 
Same thing with Adler. Meisner's to a lesser extent, I'm not gonna lie, but there's room for it in there as well. I think about how theater is so often a avenue for exploration of the darkest parts of humanity. Um, you know, drug abuse, rape, violence, murder, hatred, familial strife, all of these awful things that are like so awful in real life, we have to explore them in a safe, quote unquote, environment of theater and how this just begs for a very dangerous blurring of those lines. Um, you know, the last thing I'm going to say on it kind of related to that, this is not a real instance, but this is done in, in, a, in a movie. Alejandro Inaritu's film Birdman, which is an amazing film. Ed Norton has a character in that film where he plays this really pretentious douchebag method actor. And there is a sequence in that film where it's Broadway, it's opening night, and him and his co-actor are supposed to be having sex. And Ed Norton goes like, oh my God, I'm really feeling it. You know what? Let's actually go for it. Let's actually fuck. It'll be so amazing. And she's like, no, stay the fuck away from me. And they're in a bed and he is like, doing an assault because he thinks it'll be good acting mm -hmm. again this is a this is a fictional thing but like this whole problem begs for fucking assholes to try and do that yeah the thing i would leave it with again understanding that method acting is not in and of itself bad it is limited it is a tool Charles Lawton was um, kind of an early 20th century actor, uh, worked for a while with Bertolt Brecht, but he had a statement about method acting where he said, method actors give you a photograph while real actors give you an oil painting. Hmm. I love that notion. And he meant it derogatorily. Um, but for me, the way that I take that is method actors are always trying to give you the reality of an emotion. And there is value to that. And it is a different kind of art artistry. I would argue a more difficult kind of artistry to give you an interpretive performance, an interpretive emotion. Something beyond, quote unquote, the, whatever, whatever this fucking performance of truth is. More than anything, my issue with method acting is not its existence, it's its abuse. Just like you talk about the directors who abuse their actors into realistic performers, the actors who abuse their bodies and their selves, and frankly, probably the people around them. Like, think about fucking Jared Leto's Joker. Yeah. And how he fucking just abused his Suicide Squad castmates sending them just fucking used condoms and slaughtered pigs because he thought that's what the Joker would do. These fundamental misunderstandings to try and arrive at a goal that is fine, but not worth destruction. Sure. So I will leave with that quote, real actors give you an oil painting and just say, if someone wants to talk about how shitty method acting is, 
If you want to be pedantic like me, you can say, actually, that's a misunderstanding of method acting. But yes, those people are assholes. Indeed. And I think let's leave it there. Speaking of assholes, <laughs> um, Andy, I got the question this time and um, I pulled it from Am I the Asshole, frankly, because... Mm-hmm. This was more interesting than a lot of the stuff on relationships.txt. Fair enough, and and I like going back to that well. Sure. You read uh, the format up at the top, so uh, shall I do the question? Of course you shall. All right. Title for this, and please, please work on thinking of a name as you read this, or as you hear this. Am I the asshole for not wanting to celebrate my mom on my birthday? I have three siblings between the ages of 10 and 18. I'm the oldest fourth at 25. Every year on every single one of our birthday, we're expected to celebrate my mom as well. We've done it since we were little. It was taught to me as, quote, giving thanks for carrying and giving birth to us, which I'm all for. I am grateful as we wouldn't be here without her. The issue is, though, it becomes less of our birthday and more so an anniversary for the day our mom gave birth. Every year on our birthday, our mom gets gifts too. As we got older, we're now expected to get her monetary gifts and not cards or homemade stuff. Just recently was my birthday, and I was gifted some much-needed clothes and dishware for my new apartment. My dad, however, got my mom a new MacBook. My siblings all got her gifts too. My youngest brother isn't expected to give much, but my 16-year-old sister and 18-year-old second brother work, so they're expected to give gifts too. My sister pulled me aside before my birthday and said she was sorry she couldn't get me much. She got me a sweater. I love it. And she wanted to get me more, but our mom was pressuring her to get her to get a certain necklace for our mom. Apparently, my mom had been dropping hints for uh, for months and my sister was worried our mom would be upset and feel underappreciated if she didn't get it. I asked how much it was and my sister said it was $300. I honestly lost it on her mom and chewed into her that afternoon when my mom opened her gifts after me. I think she's ridiculous for even wanting my sister to spend so much on a gift. Mom started crying and my dad kicked me out. Mom won't answer calls, but my aunt, mom's sister, called and said I was a piece of shit for not respecting my mother and that I am a selfish, narcissistic child for being jealous of the gifts mom got. I thought I was in the right, but now I don't know. It's been over two weeks, and mom won't answer my calls. She's been posting on Facebook inspiration quotes about letting go of the toxicity in her life, how blood doesn't equal family, and how hard it is to be a mother. Several family members, aunt, grandma, uncle, and two of my cousins, are replying to the posts and are very obviously directing vague comments at me about being a horrible daughter. I don't know what to think now because of how many people are on her side. This is some all bullshit. <laughs> all right, we need a name. I mean, goddamn! I the, we have the, we have a female asker. Yeah, no, Not and, that, and that necessarily matters. Honestly, my my cup runneth over, but we we've already used Buster Bluth, I believe. Yeah. Um, this, I mean, this could straight up be Lindsay Bluth. I, I feel like we've used Gypsy Rose Blanchard, but maybe not this. Gypsy Rose is a little too dark for this, but this is still some dark shit. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two, and you tell me what you think, because the like, this is a wicked mother, and the most wicked mothers I can think of are 
Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest, and Monique in Precious. Huh. What's the name of uh, Joan Crawford's character in Mommy Dearest? No, it is it is Joan Crawford. It is a Mommy Dearest, for listeners, if you don't know, stars Faye Dunaway as ah. Hollywood actress Joan Crawford, who was a psychotically abusive mother to her daughter, Christina Crawford. You know what? Fair. Okay, Joan Crawford. So this makes the question asker, asker Christina. Okay. No! So, Christina Crawford, Mommy Dearest, No Wire Hangers. Absolutely. Um, good God, this is such widespread psychological, emotional manipulation of the entire family. This is a matriarch who has, like seeded and wormed her her thought which is a a gross thought i do feel like into every other member of the family i can i can understand sort of a token acknowledgement of appreciation for the idea of thank you for giving me life thank you i i obviously wouldn't be here for you thank you for raising me when i was a shitty little kid that's what Mother's Day is for. That's what your mother's own birthday is for. That's what Christmas is for. That's what any other gift-giving holiday is for. One's birthday is supposed to be about them. Unless they don't like attention or acknowledgement. And what's, then... What's up? Yeah, and then you can do whatever you want. The idea that not only does the entire family, you know what, I, I could go out on mom gets a gift. It's a bit much for me. I still say that's what all these other holidays are for. But if you really love your mom, okay, mom gets a gift on your birthday, a gift. The entire family each getting this woman a gift at least four, five, six times a year, if you count the mother's birthday and Christmas. Doesn't say if they celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah, but you get my point. Mm -hmm. This woman is getting a assortment of gifts no fewer than six times a year. And clearly becoming the the centerpiece of all of her children's birthdays. That is so fucked. That is so shitty and manipulating. And just the, the fallout from this is insane to me. The, the rallying of the entire family against Christina here. The dad kicking her out. The mom making shitty passive-aggressive Facebook posts like she's the victim because she only got a $300 necklace at her daughter's birthday and then said daughter was mad at her. This some fucking shit, man. You are not the asshole, Christina. Your entire family is. Blood is thicker than... Or, uh, 
Blood is not thicker than water in this case. Like, get out of that shit. Since you referenced it, I feel compelled to mention uh, the phrase blood is thicker than water uh, is actually not the proper quote. The line is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb, which literally means the opposite. It means that the family and relationships that you choose are more important than your family and the people you are related to. I don't know how it got twisted. I don't remember who twisted it, but if anyone ever tells you that, please correct them. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb, and then tell them to shove it up their ass. I am mm. with Andy on this. You are absolutely not the asshole. Um, I, I'm not gonna lie. I actually kind of liked the idea initially of you know, mom gets a little gift on her kids' birthdays. Andy says one gift, cool. Um, I, I would be fine if it were, you know, little gifts. You know, sure. you, you get a little card, you give you give mom a little gift certificate or something just to be like that would be a really cute tradition. Like on on your birthday on, on all on all her kids' birthdays, all the kids give her like a ten dollar gift card to a place she likes or something I, I don't know, something nice, but you do something small because as you said, Andy, it's nice it, it's nice that you do something for your mom, but it's not her fucking day. And the fact that the 16-year-old daughter is pressured into buying a $300 necklace for her mother and then getting her sister a sweater because it's all she can afford is a fucked dynamic. Yeah. Now, was it smart of you to go off on your mom? No. I don't blame you. But it wasn't smart of you. Alex, I, I've, I've done something that I don't think we've ever done on a question here. I'm, I'm trolling, trolling through the comments on this question because Christina Crawford has further dialogue with people. There are additional facts that I think are vital here. Um, this has always been a thing the family has done they have been quote they, they have been in a financial situation where the parents couldn't really afford college funds for the kids so we are not dealing with like exceptionally affluent people and yet it is still expected of the children to get mom a gift our christina is explaining here a story of when they were 17 they were working at wendy's trying to save her for college and were eventually like emotionally manipulated into spending their check on a gift for their mom it is only a matriarchal thing the dad gets a gift on father's day and christmas on it on, on his birthday but it is only mom who maintains this tradition and apparently also did it with her mom but then stopped after she had so many kids because she couldn't afford it this mom is a psychotic asshole. 
Yeah, Christina, your mom's a piece of shit. Joan Crawford is almost as bad as beat her daughter real life Joan Crawford. So once again, you are not the asshole. Christina, your family is toxic. I'm not telling you you need to cut ties with them. It sounds like your mother and a lot of your extended family is cutting ties with you. For the most part, fuck them. It sucks that you have younger siblings who um, I hope will not break with you because siblings, like, especially the fact that you have a 10-year-old one, like, it would really suck for you to, like, have that relationship poisoned. Like, truly. I know there's a 14-year age gap, so it's, there's trickiness there, but, like, all the same... Um, or sorry, 15 year age gap, but all the same, dude, like this is toxic. Your mother has got this, I fucking hate traditions already. Sure. I, I think I did a hate topic on it. Like you way did. at the beginning was, of the it show. It was one of our first hates. I already hate traditions. I, and if you go back to that episode, I hate traditions because by and large, a lot of the justifications for traditions are that they are old and things you have always done. And by and large, that's a terrible justification for anything. This tradition is toxic. This tradition is evil. And it could have been good. Again, if this is a small gift that's just a token of appreciation, that that would be all right. I would even think that was cute. Yeah. But the fact that your mother is offended at gift disparities that don't favor her, that she is pressuring her minor daughter who works a part-time job to get her an expensive gift to the point where her other daughter isn't getting a good gift on her birthday, or at least not anything yeah. near that parody. Like, the fact that there is not a rule on this gift giving that is not the person whose actual fucking birthday it is gets equal or greater value monetarily is a fucked dynamic. It is toxic narcissism on a level I have never personally encountered. It is fuck your special day. I am the most important person in the world you will treat me as such or I will ostracize you like you had killed my baby, which is an awkward metaphor. Leave this behind. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Find your family because, and I think we've made this point on the podcast before, your blood is a bad family, is a toxic family. And maybe there are people inside of that for whom there is hope and there is good. And maybe there are people you can reconcile with later, hopefully. Again, I'm thinking very highly of your siblings, but fuck this. Stop reaching out to your mom. Stop calling her. If she cares, she will call you. She probably won't. Fuck you, Joan. Fuck you exactly. You have one last birthday to get gifts on, you motherfucker. I get a special 
like warmth in my heart when I hear that particular timber of vitriol in Alex's voice. And I hope you do too, dear listeners. If you want to send us a question that will make Alex so goddamn upset that he's like literally shaking in front of me. I hope she dies. (laughs) You can send those as well as any less high stakes relationship questions. I hope she's wounded. Into into our uh, our inbox at love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com or just hit us up on Twitter. Either way, we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, mom, um, you are a good mother. Absolutely. <laughs> you can also. Follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Um, check us out. See what we're tweeting about. The very We, we love to revisit topics on our Twitter. Uh, you can also DM us your questions on there. We would love to receive them. That's right. Uh, if you want to follow some of my other projects, I have a film podcast called Cult Fiction with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. You can find that everywhere that you can find this show. At time of recording, I think our last episode would be Death Race 2000, the Roger Corman shittacular. Jesus Christ. Um, you can also find me, Andy Boel, on Twitter at JoVocop2113 or Andy's underscore minis, where you can see what I'm doing with my hobby. The most recent thing I did is I painted Ghost Rider. Yo, that's fucking dope, actually. Right? <laughs> you gifted me some hand paint, a hand, some hand painted Yoda. Yeah, you gifted me some hand painted Yodas, which I absolutely adore. I did. They were a joy to make. Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, uh, LieChess, and Chess.com at a underscore x underscore r u i z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please. Tell your enemies. This man played Andrew Lincoln. Andrew Lincoln? Andrew Lincoln is the motherfucker who starred in The Walking Dead, Andy. I'm cutting that. (laughs) 